Hello and welcome to The Loop, where we untangle today's business issues by throwing real-life scenarios at our panel to deliver practical advice on how middle market companies tackle current business issues. In this episode, we're looking at upcoming changes to IR35, the UK government's anti-tax avoidance legislation, which will take effect in April 2020. The government has confirmed that off-payroll rules, first introduced to the public sector, have been amended and now extended to the private sector. Recently, in the wake of the government's tax crackdown, a number of high-profile businesses have started culling contractors in what the press are calling the IR35 blame game. It seems there is mass confusion over exactly who will be affected and how severely, and whether the changes will actually come into play by April or whether they'll be delayed, as many are calling for. So with that in mind, it's just as well I'm joined by two RSM employee tax partners, Susan Ball and David Williams-Richardson. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it's good to have you here. And we're here to untangle some practical advice for middle market companies facing impending IR35 legislative changes. But before we begin, let's perhaps just get back to the very beginning of all of this and uh, and consider what IR35 is and what it means. IR35 is a new piece of legislation designed to make sure that people who work like an employee through their own limited company pay broadly the same tax contributions as full-time employees. Now, with it, the responsibility for deciding whether the rules apply and the appropriate amount of tax to be paid shifts from the individual to the employer. David, would you agree with that definition? Yeah, of course, John. So one of the features of the original IR35 legislation has been that that the onus has been on the the personal service company to effectively self-assess whether or not these rules apply. Consequently, the government believes that there's been quite significant non-compliance, and they reckon that's costing about £1.3 a year. Okay, and it's those changes that we want to get to the heart of uh, in this programme. Now, we're going to be throwing some real-life experiences at you both and looking for you to deliver guidance on how to deal with different scenarios as it relates to IR35 and the changes coming through. So, first of all, do you accept the challenge? Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Famous last words. Very good. Okay, so... Here's the first scenario then, Uh, and you're both in a bit of a sticky situation. You're the MD of a technology business with approximately 500 staff, and a high percentage of those are contractors. But the majority come to you through a third party. Surely your business is covered. You don't need to worry about IR35. David, what do you think? Uh, well, I, th- I think certainly you've got to look at this very, very closely. Um, you know, the, sh- the, the short answer is is that th- these rules may very well apply. So, what really you need to be doing is literally analysing uh, the the arrangements that you have with each of those contractors. Um, you, you know, and, th- and that may maybe several hundred people. So, so you've actually got to work out what structure are they providing their services to you through. That could be through a personal service company. Uh, it could be through a partnership. Um, it could be as a sole trader, uh, an individual. So, so that is very much the, the the first part of what you have to do. Okay. So when we talk about uh, the majority coming through a third party here, that's what you're referring to. There, it's the the organisation that's brought these contractors in. Yeah, and and it could also be that the third party is an agency. 
So again, you may um, feel that you've got those contractors through an agency and therefore you don't need to consider these rules, but that's not the case. So the important point to remember is that the starting point is that you have an obligation to assess whether or not these rules apply on a case-by-case -case basis. And the new legislation applies for payments from 6th of April 2020. So some of these contractors may have been working for you for a, for a number of years. Uh, you will have to make an assessment before you make any payments to decide whether or not this legislation applies. And as I say, that will depend on the structure through which they are providing their services to you. OK. Susan, what kind of due diligence do you as a business need to take in order to get to the heart of this? And what kind of processes are there? Uh, well, if you've got 500 people, that's quite a lot and you need to put them in the various different buckets. What are they? Are they um, straight self-employed? There's no intermediary like a personal service company or an LLP or are they through an agency? And say, for example, if you're using an agency, um, what you would do by way of due diligence is say to the agency, are they operating pay as you earn a national insurance on the people? They might, They may well be. So you would want to check that and make sure that they are. And if they are, then obviously these rules wouldn't apply. However, if they said to you, actually, no, we're not operating, then again, they're going to be in the group of people that you're going to have to consider for the new IR35 rules. So if we were talking about somebody who was self-employed um, on their own account and they didn't have an intermediary wrapper around them, then actually you should have been making decisions about them and their status already. That's Those rules have been in place for years. We're talking about those people that have some form of wrapper either provided by an agency who hasn't operated pay-as-you-earn or directly to you. And for those, you're going to have to put some processes in place to be able to deal with them. David, uh, what size of business are we talking about here when uh, we consider, for instance, the technology business in our scenario or others as well? How big do you have to be to be affected by the new IR35 rules? An essential um, feature of the new legislation is that it will only apply to medium and large organisations in the private sector uh, as well as public sector organisations. So uh, small companies are accepted from applying this legislation um, and small companies for these purposes are defined by the Companies Act um, and, and broadly uh, a company is a small company if it has turnover of, of less than 10.2 million, uh, if it has uh, gross assets or a balance sheet total of less than 5.1 million or it has an average of, of less than 50 employees taken over over a year. So if it satisfies two of those tests, then it will be regarded as, as a small company and it will therefore be exempt from applying this legislation. Now, a word of caution on that, there are exceptions. For example, if, if a company is a subsidiary of a parent company and the parent company is actually not small, then the subsidiary equally will not be small. Uh, and there's also uh, you know, rules around joint ventures um, and, and connected persons as well. Don't assume it applies uh, unless you've actually uh, obtained some professional advice around that. And the new rules themselves, do you think that uh, HMRC has sufficiently broadcast the fact that they're about to land? Our businesses, as we were just discussing a little earlier, are they prepared because they know enough about this or, or not? I think HMRC are starting to do um, workshops. They're having calls with the larger clients, um, but they've only got a certain amount of resource. So current HMRC activity is very much being focused on, on the larger businesses. 
Um, and I suspect that that you know some of the middle market businesses are, are not seeing that uh, as, as as much as as much as other clients. And, and what if the technology business that we're discussing here? What if they think, do you know what? We're fine. We're not going to worry about this. We'll carry on as we have done before. We don't need to worry about this. What are the implications there, David? So effectively, overnight. Um, when we get to 6th of April 2020, uh, with this bank of contractors, uh, this technology business potentially has a, a significant risk if it hasn't considered these new rules uh, and applied these new rules. So potentially it could be held responsible for the PAYA and the NIC uh, that, that it's due in relation to payments to these to these workers, and and over a period of time, that liability is gonna is gonna mount up, and the penalties are gonna mount up as well. David, let's just take a step back for a second and think: what are the legal implications around all of this? Yeah, it's, it's a really important point, John, because you know we've been focused on on the tax implications, but. What we've got to think about here is is that we're potentially uh, curtailing someone's contract early. We're potentially changing someone from a contractor status to an employee status. Uh, we're potentially having difficult discussions around uh, tax liabilities becoming payable uh, and, and indemnities. Um, and and so, so really, the, the message is, is that there's a whole host of legal issues that need to be considered here, as well as just the, 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 the tax issues. So plenty of questions there. Um, when it comes to payroll, what are the implications, Susan? Well, if we end up with um, some deemed employees that you need to put on payroll, it can actually be slightly complicated. It sounds straightforward, but um, you might have an invoice. So you're going to take an invoice from a contractor. Um, potentially, that invoice is going to have VAT on it. So you're going to take off the VAT. You're going to then put that amount through payroll and make deductions of tax and national insurance. So you're going to need a certain amount of information about the contractor to do that, name, national insurance number, etc. You're then going to say, well, hang on a minute, I've now got a a net payment after tax and national insurance and VAT. I've got to add those two back together and then I've got to pay somebody. And the other point to mention, I suppose, is that historically contractors, when they've submitted invoices, people have just treated them and paid them when their next payment run might be. But for payroll, you're not going to want to run a payroll every single day. So you're going to have to try and match up when you're prepared to pay people who are deemed employees to maybe when you already run a payroll for normal employees or at least decide whether you're going to run payrolls weekly or monthly for this group of people. Just a final thought on this, Susan. Could HMRC look retrospectively? That's an interesting question. Um, We found that actually in the public sector when the rules came in. A lot of the contractors actually walked off site because they were worried about that very point. You know, if you were inside the rules, i.e. a deemed employee, um, and you'd been working for the same organisation for some period of time, why weren't you inside the rules pre-April? And obviously for the individuals with their own personal service company, if we use that as an example... Um, that meant they should have been operating the rules on themselves. And so they were very worried about that and renegotiated the terms because they were concerned. When these rules were being introduced um, and the information was given out, HMRC said they wouldn't necessarily use the changeover period at 6th of April as a way of targeting specifically. But they also made it clear that actually they would still apply the rules as they stood during routine, normal HMRC activity, which means that that is a risk for people. So that sounds like leniency, but from the HMRC. (laughs) Right. Okay. Okay, David. So what role do recruitment agencies have in all of this? 
So a common misconception that, that, that we see is, is that a client will say, well, look, I don't need to worry about these rules because I'm getting all of my off-payroll workers through an agency. Now, under the new rules, you're still going to have an obligation. HMRC have issued some um, guidance notes on how you do due diligence on agencies, and that's on, available on their website. So that'll be useful for businesses. So let me just summarise here then. What you're saying is that uh, this is much more than simply just a tax issue. It has much wider implications. And that uh, really as a business, this technology business needs to bring together its broader team, its legal team and others as well to make sure it's covered across the board. Uh, would you broadly say that that's, that summary is right? I think it's really important to, to, to emphasise that this isn't just a, a tax issue. So clients that, that, that I'm speaking to are, are soon realising that this will impact their HR team, it will impact their accounts payable team, their payroll team. And, and you know, for larger clients, that will extend to procurement as well uh, and accounts payable because they're the ones that are going to have to process the invoices. So, in, you know, in this case, we've been considering if, if you've got 500 staff and the majority of them are contractors, uh, if they all disappear overnight, uh, how are you going to keep running your business? Let's change the, the angle of this debate, really, with the next challenge and look at it from a slightly different perspective. Uh, you're advising me in this scenario. I'm a business analyst from, for a financial services company based in Scotland. I'm on a 12-month contract, and I'm not sure if the new IR35 rules will apply to me and what my options are if they do. So I'm basically a bit worried, a bit concerned. What does this mean for me? Susan, what would you say, first off, uh, this would mean for me? Um, well, the first thing um, is it could impact you. You would have to go and effectively ask your engager, the financial services company, what they were going to do. Because what you could find is suddenly at the 6th of April, uh, perhaps they'd make a determination and say you're a deemed employee and then you've got deductions of tax and national insurance and perhaps you weren't expecting that. So that's a nasty surprise yeah. waiting for me. Now, one might expect HMRC to be at least making personal service companies and others uh, aware of the rules. Can it be the same said for an individual like this um, analyst? Well, I, th I think it's quite difficult. I think there's a lot of publicity about the rules. There has been. I think actually if you open the papers most days <laughs> at the moment, there's some publicity about the rules in some shape or form, which is probably good because it's getting the message out there. But if you're that business analyst and you've got your personal service company, um, yeah, it could make a massive impact if, if all of the people you're currently working with decide that you need to be a deemed employee. Um, because quite possibly you're going to end up paying more tax and national insurance than maybe historically you did. Yeah, I think I would just add, it, it, you know, it's, it's so important to have that early dialogue. So in this case, if you are the worker, if you're the, if you're the contractor, uh, you should be making sure that you have a discussion with the clients that you're working for. Um, because, you know, as we said earlier, it's the clients who are going to have to decide whether or not uh, these rules apply. And what if, as the contractor... I don't necessarily want to become P-A-Y-E. Susan, the risk for me is that as a contractor, I may end up paying a lot more tax than I have been before without necessarily gaining any of the benefits of full employment. What's in it for me? I seem to be losing out here. Well, I guess that depends. Um, I mean, if you like the flexibility of being a contractor, then obviously... Um, 
just paying tax and national insurance on the basis of an employee might not be a problem. I mean, you may be um, in a position where you can negotiate your rates to take into account that. Um, obviously, the downside is you don't get um, the employment benefits you might do if you were an actual employee. So, you know, holiday pay, pension, etc. You would have to weigh up the pros and cons and how it works for you. But there are still benefits to being a contractor. There's much more flexibility in it. An important point here is, is that if the rules do apply, you are a deemed employee. Yeah, not a real one. You, so, so you're, you're not an employee. Right. As... You're neither disguised nor real, but deemed. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that's important because it means that whilst the, the client will have to operate the PAY and the NIC, the client won't have to give you paid holiday and they won't have to give you pension auto-enrolment contributions and the, and the other points that, that Susan's just been mentioning. Now, it may be the case that the parties agree that you become an employee as a solution to this, but you are not an employee as a result of an IR35 determination. But that, um, that final point you make there, David, that has cost implications for a business to bring on board uh, an, a, a contractor and make them a full-time employee. Yeah, and, and, and that's very true. And, that, and that's why these arrangements have worked very well for, for, for both parties historically, because the, the end client may not have that ongoing work. Um, and it may suit the, the contractor to go from one engagement to another. Um, but again, if, if that is the, the, the case, then this may not actually be disguised employment anyway. Now, is that the same for somebody that operates as a sole trader? Uh, are we talking about all forms of contractual work, freelance work here, Susan? What um, organisations should be doing for those is saying at the start of that engagement, do they look like an employee? Because clearly, if a sole trader looks like an employee, then they should be on the payroll. And there is a risk for that organisation if they don't do that, that actually they could be held liable by HMRC for the tax and national insurance. People you know, are struggling sometimes with making those determinations. HMRC have come out with a tool. So there's a status check tool on their website. Um, it's it's being worked on and updated on a regular basis. Take me through it, though. What, what kind of questions does it ask? Is it about the length of time you're working for the company, the sort of things that perhaps you're doing? It, it asks all sorts of questions. It won't just be the length of time. It will be the nature of the relationship you have. So... Um, one of the things when you're looking at these rules is not just to look at the contract you've got, because sometimes the contract says one thing and the actual practical circumstances say something else. So the questions would be asking you would be about, you know, how do you do the work? When do you do the work? So those all those questions are in the, the tool, which people can use. HMRC say that if you actually complete the tool correctly um, and you print it off, you can rely on the answer. The problem we've got with the tool is that it doesn't cover absolutely everything. Um, it only actually comes to an answer at the moment in about 85% of cases. And then it doesn't cover all the various permutations of the tests that have been built up by case law. And I think also it's, it's worth mentioning that there has been talk of actually you know, producing a, a legislative uh, solution as to how you determine status. And, and we all think that's a very good idea. Uh, and that was raised some time ago in, in, in a report by Matthew Taylor called The Good Work Plan. Um, but unfortunately, that hasn't seen the light of day yet. And, th and that would help um, a lot of these queries around whether someone is, is employed or self-employed or, or whether they are caught or not caught by R35. Isn't this ultimately pushing more people towards being PAYE, being on the books, fewer contractors, fewer freelancers. Is that what the government ultimately wants to do? 
well, I think it will help in terms of the of the tax and national insurance take. These rules are only designed to catch arrangements where the individual essentially has the features of employment in the first place. There will be you know, lots of contractors who will pass this test, if you like, uh, and they will be able to continue operating in, uh, under the arrangements they, they have now. And just give me a brief example of some of those then. You know, what, what would differentiate those? Is it about the amount of time they're spending with the business, the type of work? I think it's, uh, you know, if, if someone is working um, on, on a project basis, for example. So they engage with a client um, and the client says, right, we want this project done. We don't care how you do the project or who you use on the project. We just want a report or, or, or a conclusion at the end. Um, you know, that then I would say, well, you know, that's likely to be a, a genuine consultancy project that will be fine, as opposed to an arrangement where someone is coming in five days a week, uh, has a desk and has been working for that business for 20 years, which we do actually come across quite frequently. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, now we're almost out of time, but I would like one message from you each, one takeaway for our listeners from you each on this subject. David, you first. What was the overarching point that you'd like to make? I think based on discussions with, with a number of businesses, my, my message will be please don't underestimate the amount of work that's required. And as I say, you know, understand that those preparations have got to include stakeholders throughout your business. So I would say, you know, you just get on with it, basically. And Susan, what would you add to that? Well, basically, I think that's right. I think the trouble is organisations have got to think about the fact they've got to do status determinations and they've got to give a status determination statement. They've got to introduce an appeals procedure and, may, and monitor that because they've only got 45 days to respond. There's actually transfer of debt provisions in there. So I think it's really, really important they start now and work out what have they got. And the final thing I would say is that, you know, we've said at the beginning... The rules are already in for the public sector, but they must remember that the rules are changing for them as well. OK, Susan, thank you very much. Susan Ball, David Williams-Richardson, both of you, thank you very much indeed. And thank you for listening. You can find out more information and advice at www.rsmuk.com forward slash IR35. And we're very keen on your view, so please do rate us and leave a review of this podcast. And to keep in the loop, please subscribe to The Loop and listen to our next podcast where we'll untangle mentoring in the tech sector.